I see the Carlisle Buddhist group is here this evening. Very nice to see you. And also I see there's a question being given this evening. Can you speak on the importance of meditation? This word meditation is used in many different ways, perhaps these days more than ever before. different approaches to meditation, you've got the, the Buddhist take on it, you've got the Hindu take on it, then the, there is, although it's not the mainstream, there is still a, a Christian approach to meditation, and it's a New Age meditation and so on. I find that uh, what is presented in the Buddhist teaching um, as meditation, I think it's very helpful to remember that that it's part of a whole package. Sometimes it's been my observation that that people will pick up meditation uh, like it's as if it's a sort of a, a cure-all, some sort of snake oil, you know, kind of this is going to fix everything, or. Also, sometimes it's like um, what I experienced as a youngster with when people would they'd go to church on Sunday and do the thing and that was it. And the rest of the week uh, was nothing to do with the spiritual life. They'd just go and you know, go to church and then forget about it. And, and so I've heard people in the, in the Buddhist world talk about meditation like this. That they go on meditation retreat and... Uh, do what they do in a meditation retreat or do what they do in a sitting and then the rest of the life, well, that's something else. That's business as usual and there's a big split. Well, I would like to uh, say that from the beginning in this uh, contemplation that, that I don't think that's not, that doesn't accord with the, uh, the Buddhist approach to these things. There's a whole package and whereas I think it's, it's fine if uh, the you know, modern Western secular society extracts bits of Buddhism and makes use of it, like I was speaking a couple of weeks ago about how you can get university degrees in mindfulness, and mindfulness is a therapeutic tool. Is, uh, you know, it's very well known and well used, and for many, many people, the word you know, mindfulness meditation has got nothing to do with Buddhism at all. Uh, well, I think that's fine if people can ex- find use for these things. However, there's uh, the way that uh, our teacher, the Buddha, uh, presented the path of purification, the, the, the teaching that leads to complete freedom from suffering, was that uh, there's formal meditation, uh, but there's also the daily life meditation. In other words, meditation is really a way of reflecting, a way of using 
this capacity we have as human beings to reflect on life, to to not not be not allow ourselves to be fooled by what we're conditioned to believe, and there is not be fooled by the surface appearance of things. There's a surface appearance of things, the way things appear to be, and that's the way things actually are. And we all know this from, from what our passions tell us. <clears throat> the, when, the, when the passions flare up, you know, you, you're angry, and the feeling you have, the way it appears to be, is if you just thump somebody, and uh, you're going to feel better. Yeah. Basically, if you just get it out. That's if we're possessed by the unruly passions. Yeah, that's what it appears to be. Whereas the truth, the reality is, uh, if we act on such impulses, the pain goes out and increases for ourselves and for others. And so uh, this is the state of delusion that we normally function under. And so the Buddha talked about this, this jitta bhavana or cultivation of the heart. So it's to address this, uh, this dysfunction, uh, this, uh, this very limited limited state of being. Human beings can get around reacting according to our conditioning, but what uh, all the great spiritual teachers have pointed out is that actually we can do more. It is possible to do something better with our lives than just react according to impulse. And so one of the main tools of this is meditation how to train the mind to see more deeply. And there are basically as many ways of meditating as there are people. Now, some people, some meditation teachers will tell us that there's only one way. And, And that's probably inspired by their enthusiasm and their own understanding. And um, that probably works also for some people. However, for a lot of people, that ends up being confusing. And uh, it doesn't uh, seem to be what the Buddha was saying. Uh, he uh, was very clear. He said, you've got to work this out for yourselves. You have to find out, find your own way. And so we all created the the tangles of confusion that we live in, and uh, meditation is the process of untangling it. Now, there are some particular skills that can be developed, you know, like just like you know, you're going through your school years and you, know, you learn the basics of mathematics and the basics of chemistry, the basics of language. We learn these basic skills and learn how to do research, learn how to study things so that then when it comes to uh, engaging in life in our own personal, meaningful way, we've got the basic skills, we've got the tools. You you don't have any education, well, uh, we're seriously limited. Well, the same thing holds true for the inner journey, uh, the spiritual path of practice, that, that there are some basic skills that... Uh, we need to develop. And if we don't develop, then well, then we're, uh, we're limited, obstructed. And, and so uh, 
these basic meditation skills of, of um, looking at how, how are we with the quality of attention? Yeah. How, how do we exercise paying attention? Now, if we haven't looked at this, we haven't trained our mind, then our meditation, our, ex- our attention just, just reacts. You know, something attractive, something repulsive, whatever. Just, our attention goes zoom, 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 uh, goes all over the place. But uh, so the encouragement is to recognize that, that we have, potentially, we have complete authority over our attention and what we're going to do with it. And if we learn to steady attention, we learn to focus attention, well, then we get a different sort of experience. Hold your mind steady on a particular object for a consistent period of time, then you can learn something more about it. But if our attention is always sapping all over the place, then we only see superficial, in a superficial way. Or we learn to steady our attention, uh, focus it, concentrate it to a there's a certain potentizing takes place. And then we get another different experience. And, or if we hold our attention still on an object, well then all the extraneous or a lot of the extraneous activity settles down. And then the mind becomes peaceful and quiet and calm and, and then we get another experience. And so if we have this kind of appreciation of the possibility of working directly with our attention, well then we get interested. Then we get interested in working directly with our minds. And so uh, I think this is, this is really the essence of all meditation practice, whether it's the formal meditation uh, practice of, of sitting still, closing our eyes, turning the light of attention inwards and going deeper and connecting with our own real mean, meaningful heart questions about what's important in life, or whether it's being engaged in life, you know, engaged in the activity of life, where our attention is outer. You know, we are seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching things. But this interest in what's important is alive. So I would say this is the essence of meditation, really, is, is to connect with what we're really interested in. Now, we can be dazzled by great teachings from great masters and we, we, because we feel so disabled or unable or confused or lost or disoriented or whatever, we, we say, oh, yes, master, and we, we take on their techniques and we do what they tell us to do and we can do it for a few years, but we somehow, some part of us is lagging behind. I mean, I've, I've seen this happen many times. Where people are doing what they've been told to do, but not all of them is doing it. Not all of them is involved with it. And it's kind of a meditation becomes something like rearing a hothouse plant that's okay so long as you keep the temperature of the conservatory up to a certain degree, which, you know, quite frankly, in this country is very expensive. Some of these Asian pot plants, you know, they don't survive very well over here unless you're very energy extravagant. And so the point I'm trying to make there is that we, you know, we have to be very discerning uh, when we pick up meditation techniques and teachings, uh, particularly from uh, powerful, uh, charismatic teachers, and, and make sure that we're not being too impressed uh, by what they're saying, 
to the extent where we lose touch with what we're really interested in. And again, interest is the essence of meditation, whatever our practice is, you know, to stay in touch with. But what are we, what are we in this for? Yeah. I can, I've seen many, many, many times it happen that, that uh, you know, people are meditating, doing what they think they're supposed to be doing, but then you ask them a simple question, well, well what do you want out of life anyway? And they don't know. Or, and what are you looking for in meditation? Don't know. A lost touch with the desire, basic interests, basic desires. And now, of course, this gets a little complicated because you know Buddhist teachings on four noble truths and desire is a cause of suffering, and so on. They can think, oh, you know, we're supposed to get rid of desires. Well, that's again, that's not a very deep appreciation of the teaching. Uh, of course we want something. Yeah. Of course we've got desires. And we don't want to lose touch with these desires as we start to meditate. And so whatever the techniques are, yeah. uh, whatever the teachers are saying, to I would say, say to stay in touch with what we're interested in, where our interest lies, where our energy lies. Because if we're not in touch with that, it's going gonna, it's gonna to eventually undermine us. Yeah. And uh, it goes underground, if you like. And if we are in touch with this, well, then we can we can learn from everything. You know, if it's time to do formal meditation, well, then you'll do formal meditation because you want to, because you really want to. And uh, sometimes this means that that when you've been doing meditation for the wrong motivation, like you've been busy meditating because you think Buddhists all meditate or because you're so confused you've got to take this meditation medicine and make yourself meditate or your friends are meditating or whatever, been doing meditation for some limited reason, and you've been doing it for many years, well, sometimes what it means is you've got to stop meditating until you uh, settle down and get back in touch with what's really true, you know, what, you, what you feel in your guts about life, what's valuable, what matters, what's important. Yeah. Sometimes meditation, uh, we, if we lose touch with what, what's important to us, then we can end up mistaking um, something like a meditation, sometimes if you concentrate your attention, you can, you know, long enough you can get into all sorts of blissful experiences and, and wonderful things can happen. And, uh, you know, a lot of you have heard me talking about my early experiences of meditation, living in these hippie communes in Australia, hugging trees and tears of bliss streaming down my cheek and just, just thinking I'm just a few steps away from Nibbana now. And, and, uh, of course it was, you know, <laughs> I was drunk. Actually, and not because I was smoking or drinking anything, but it's just you can use meditation like that. You can bliss out, or you can use it as a tranquilizer. Meditation numbs the pain of life. You can get a little bliss going and early on in meditation because beginner's mind, enthusiasm, and and uh, that's that's good and uh, that's that's true. It's real. It's it's happening. But we mistake it for the real thing. You know, we we start a meditation. Uh, because we're interested in quality life, or whatever words we want to put on it. We're interested in not being fooled by life. Or, uh, but here we are, we get fooled by another aspect of life, like pleasure. The pleasure that comes from meditation. Or just the freedom, you know, just like getting a break. You know, do a little meditation technique, uh, doing loving kindness. You know, Ajahn Abhinanda last week gave a wonderful talk on 
approach to metta meditation. I downloaded the talk of it. Um, and uh, in there he was referring to this, this concept of doing metta, which is often what happens in practice. People do loving-kindness meditation or do concentration meditation or do whatever technique and, and get very high. You know, I can remember practicing loving-kindness meditation and this kind of doing manner and just just thinking I love all beings and just full of it, absolutely full of it. I'm basically just full of myself, really. I was just getting off on myself, just you know, having a bit of a rush, really, and uh, thinking this was the real thing. And then, of course, when I met some people, I realized very quickly that actually they weren't included in, in um, this rush that I was getting. <laughs> I basically just wished I'd go to hell and leave me alone so that I could get high on loving all beings again. <laughs> Well, if we're not really in touch with what matters to us, what's important, well, you know, um, yeah, what we really care about, deeply care about, well, we can get fooled. And uh, so I guess this is the point I'm trying to emphasize. Uh, that, uh, there's lots of teachings around. And, and yes, it's important that uh, we do arrive at a contrasting appreciation of life but that we arrive there, all of us arrive there. Not, otherwise, you know, we, we can just get stoned or numbed or whatever by the, 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 the byproducts, the side effects of meditation. So Buddhist meditation is cultivating what Ajahn Abhinanda referred to last, last week as unobstructed awareness. You know, that's what Buddhist meditation is about, how to arrive at unobstructed awareness. And so if we have such an appreciation... Uh, as we're cultivating whatever technique it is, well, then we'll see where we may be uh, falling short of that, you know, getting hooked on, on, on certain uh, side effects or byproducts and so on. And also, it means that any benefit that we gain in our formal meditation will spill over into daily life. And our ability to reflect and learn from what's going on around us uh, will spill over. Whereas if we overemphasize meditation technique or meditation experience, think I've got to, the more I meditate, uh, the closer I'm going to get to Nibbana. So, well, it might be, but it might also be the more you meditate, the more deluded you're getting, yeah. the more numb that we're getting. So I would suggest that perhaps as a barometer uh, for our meditation practice uh, to check to see, is this spilling over to daily life? You know, are we increasing in our capacity to learn from everything that comes our way? Or we become more exclusive and say, oh, I can't deal with this situation, I can't deal with that situation. Now, I'm not denying, of course, there's a time to go on retreat and to uh, pull back from the overstimulus of, of, of the world and external uh, sense objects, absolutely. But uh, we're not living on permanent retreat yeah. That uh, that you know, sometimes uh, we have to engage in everyday situations. It doesn't matter, even if you're some highly privileged uh, monk or nun living in a very fortunate circumstance, as you know, can happen. What happens when you get sick? Yeah. Uh, like uh, Ajahn Sundara, I got a photograph from Ajahn Sundara was it last year or the year before in a hospital ward in. San Francisco, lying there in bed with her 
Nighty on. <laughs> now, I've seen Najin Sundra for many, many years, for decades, and oh, she's always worn her brown robes. But there she is lying in bed with a hospital nighty, with tubes going into her. And uh, fortunately, she's well enough established in her practice to know how to accord with the changing conditions. Well, likewise, Ajahn Yanarato, those of you that know him, uh, a couple of weeks ago having a major uh, cancer operation and being stuck in hospital for several weeks. And, and so uh, even if you are living in, in uh, something like a, a long-term retreat or permanent retreat, what happens when you get unwell and life changes and you need to be in a hospital there with, uh, you don't have the fragrance of incense anymore, you just have the, the stink of disinfectant. And you don't have helpful young monks and anagarikas around you, but you have very attractive young nurses running around. You know, very unsettling, very disturbing, or can be, if your practice is not uh, agile enough. So uh, that's, I think, probably the point I'd like to emphasize with, with meditation, that, that yes, we do need to arrive at a contrasting perspective of life, which is what formal meditation can give us, but to not lose touch with what's really important, yeah. what really matters. And we only know that for ourselves in our hearts. In our heart of hearts, we know that. Nobody else can tell us what really matters. Yes, a lot of people will try and tell us, and they can be very convincing, but that just because we believe them or go along with them still doesn't mean to say that we know for ourselves in our heart of hearts what really matters. So as I understand the Buddhist teaching, is uh, this is the essence really to to get closer and closer to what really matters to us, what we're really interested in in our heart of hearts, and then to engage with the meditation and to stay in touch with that. And the meditation will give us a different perspective on reality. You know, when, when, when thinking ceases, you know, all that babbling that just goes on, and, and not just because we've anesthetized our heads you know you can do that you can you know you, a lot of people are anesthetized from the neck down anyway and, uh, and then they come into meditation then they manage to anesthetize their heads as well and so they become something like a kind of a television screen with a test pattern on you can it's kind of you know white noise with nothing happening well if your life's been miserable enough before that you might find that as something like a break and even enjoyable but after a while, it's you know not very entertaining anymore. Uh, and so uh, meditation is much more than just numbing out. And if we have any of us have experienced the the pleasure of of letting go of 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 our compulsive, heedless, exuberant thinking minds, and uh, there's a whole body mind here and now, and and then also fully feeling this moment and coming to appreciate what it's like to fall back into a larger perspective, a larger appreciation, a larger awareness, a vaster reality. And to see how from that perspective, all the stuff that we thought was so terribly important was well, relativized. And that's what I mean by a contrasting perspective on the world. We, you know, like even the sense of me, which I take terribly seriously. Yeah. Um, you know, if you if you say something unpleasant to Ajahn Abhinanda, I mean, I'm, you know, 
might notice or might not notice it. But if you say something unpleasant to me, I'll notice. Now, why is that the case? I mean, Ajinabhinanda and I just living beings, equal human beings, floating around this planet, doing our thing. Why do I take it more personally? Well, if we can get a, a deeper perspective on that perception feeling, not just thought, but the whole feeling of meanness, we get another perspective on it. We see that it's relative, that this me arises and ceases. This, this me is conditioned. This me is born out of conditions. This profoundly important, significant experience of me <laughs> that seems so real, we start to question it. We start to doubt it. That's a gift. And so, you know, talking about the importance of meditation, well, if we can have such a, a, a shift in appreciation on the importance of me, that's very important. You know, we can struggle with with moralizing about how we should and shouldn't be, and, and we've all you know, seen the suffering of the world and the suffering that comes from selfishness, and, and maybe we've come across, we've had the good fortune to come across the example of somebody who seems more selfless and, and the natural beauty of somebody who isn't so self-obsessed and self-referencing all the time. And then we can just get critical of ourselves. It is very beautiful when you see somebody who's selfless. It's very inspiring. I hear somebody told me recently that even Homer Simpson has had a transformative experience. Now, I haven't seen this movie, but apparently there's a movie out there where Homer Simpson, uh, I see some of you nodding your heads, he, he goes, does some shamanic practices and he realizes what a self-obsessed, self-referencing slob he is and that what he really needs to do is actually be more concerned about other people. And you can't help but be impressed. Even Homer Simpson, the archetypal slob, actually can be inspiring when he becomes a little selfless. Now... When we, when we have such an experience, whether it's Homer Simpson or somebody else who's a little more present, uh, and then you contrast that to yourself and you say, oh, I'm such a selfish, self-referencing, self-obsessed, egotistical maniac. Even I've been meditating all these years. It's just for my own benefit, really. And we can use that as an, exp- uh, an excuse to give ourselves a hard time. Uh, well... That's if we still think this impression of self is what it looks like, that it is something that we have to take terribly seriously. Whereas if we meditate in the right way, here and now, whole body, mind, patiently allowing the meditation to deepen, staying in touch with what's important to us personally, not just projecting out onto somebody else and doing what somebody else tells us to do, you know, just as a whole body mind, letting over the years, letting our meditation deepen and arriving at this experience of, of, of relativizing the experience of meanness. Well, then even when you catch yourself being a self-obsessed twit, very interesting. It's just become something else to help practice. We can learn from that. We can learn from even our conceit. We can learn from our anger. We can learn from our lack of forgiveness we can learn from. People often get upset about holding on to resentment for years. And uh, 
happens regularly in meditation. People meditating for years and then they suddenly they come across some resentment that they've been harboring for a long time and they see it and then what they do, they just feel very guilty. Well, if we have some appreciation of how even this, this me, even this resentful me, it's just something else to study. You know, this is not, you know, we don't have to take ourselves so personally. <laughs> Sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? We don't have to take ourselves so personally. Yeah. Well, we don't have to take ourselves so seriously, you know, so solidly. And, and this is what one of the most important things I think meditation can do for us. It shows the relativity of everything. Greedy, greedy, energy extravagant, kind of heedless individual, carbon footprint the size of this carpet here. My goodness, you know, no wonder the globe's going down the tube, the amount of energy you guzzle, you know, hot water here, and leaving the taps on when you clean your teeth. I mean, how heedless can you get? Uh, not recycling paper, just too lazy. And, and so you come across your greed and heedlessness and, and give yourself a very hard time over it. Well, if our meditation has taken us to an appreciation of the relativity of this so-called me, well then, what comes up is more a, a feeling of compassionate appreciation for me. It's This me is sometimes, it seems such a pathetic thing, really. Just this pathetic, screaming, whining ghost floating around trying to prove that it's more than just a shadow, yeah. trying to be solid, and it's got no hope. There's absolutely no hope for it being anything other than pathetic and inherently inadequate. So those of you that are, you know, are still holding out, you know, and doing self-improvement programs, thinking that you're going to be happy one day, <laughs> I got some bad news for you. <laughs> but. Uh, Presumably, since you're here in a Buddhist monastery, you're not doing that. You realize that uh, that this uh, experience of me is inherently flawed. That uh, it's it's just it's just a myth. It's not the way it appears to be. And uh, and with an appreciation of meditation and staying in touch with, staying connected with our own organic feeling of what's really important, we're not going to get distracted by the byproducts or the side effects of meditation. We're not going to get overly impressed with amazing books that we read or discourses that we listen to. We're going to do what the Buddha encouraged us to do and wisely reflect on our experience, whether it's in formal meditation, you know, doing concentration practice or, or moments of opening and insight, or whether it's in uh, daily life reflection. Uh, we're not going to get distracted. So uh, I hope these hints this evening are of some benefit and uh, will stimulate your own contemplations. Thank you very much this evening for your attention. <laughs>